Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. The Guardian. Hello and welcome to The Guardian Books Podcast with me, Richard Lee. Me, Shan Kane. And me, Claire Armistead. This week, we talk to Rory McLean and Luke Harding about how writing about Russia has become a genre in and of itself, which opens up a question we'll be discussing later on. Is there a firm dividing line between the genres of fiction and non-fiction after all? Rory McLean is a travel writer who's been roaming Eastern Europe, Asia and beyond for 30 years. His most recent journey, Pravda Haha, or should that be Haha? It retraces the course he took through Eastern Europe after the fall of the Berlin Wall in 1989, an extraordinary journey which became his best-selling debut, Stalin's Nose. But is truth subjective in a world of alternative facts? He came to the studio to talk with Claire and The Guardian's Luke Harding, whose book about the poisoning of Alexander Litvinenko, a very expensive poison, was transformed into a sellout play at London's Old Vic. Now, the reason I wanted to have you together is because I have a theory about the way that we write about Russia now. I think it's developing into a genre. Um, you both come from different traditions. Luke, you a, were a reporter in Moscow, and that's your basis is in the, the gathering and reporting of facts, sometimes very contentious facts. Um, Rory, you're, you're a sort of more a freewheeler and you sort of <laughs> drive around. And in your original um, book, um, Stalin's Nose, Stalin's Nose, you drove around in a in a, a trap, an old trabant with your widowed aunt and a pig called Winston. That's didn't you? right. Yes, that's that's what it says in the book. <laughs> <laughs> so, so um, am I right about this idea of there being a genre of Russian writing, Luke? Um, I think I think that's right. I think there've been a, a series of um, powerful nonfiction books. If you go back twenty five years, there's uh, David Remnick's Lenin's Tomb, which won the Pulitzer, which was a a, a really rather brilliant chronicle of, of the collapse of the Soviet Union um, and uh, the rise and fall of Gorbachev. Uh, and since then, uh, lo- lots of great books from uh, ranging from Chrystia Friedland, who's now Canada's foreign minister, to Peter Pomerantsev, who's exploring the nature of of truth and, and post-modernity in Russia. And I, I guess the sort of nonfiction spy thrillers that I write about Alexander Litvinenko's death, but also after I got kicked out from Russia in 2011, I, I wrote a book called Mafia State, which essentially posited that uh, the spy services of Vladimir Putin, organized crime and government bureaucracy had sort of fused into a single entity. And and, and these are very powerful stories, uh, so surreal and dark and disturbing. You, you, you sort of almost think that you don't need to write fiction because nonfiction is so arresting. But there are some, some great, great novels about about modern Russia as so well. So you mentioned Peter Pomerantsev, whose um, most recent book significantly was called Nothing is True and Everything is Possible, um, Adventures in Modern Russia, which which brings us to you, Rory. <laughs> Adventures, it's, it's no longer, of course, modern Russia. And, and one, of the, one of the selling lines of your marketing people is that when you started traveling in 1989, there were 11 countries with border walls or fences, and now there are 70. 70, yep, just and about is 70 now. 70 in, in what terrain? 
in in the world. There were in 1989 there were 11 fortified borders in the world: North Korea, Cyprus, um, and uh, of course the Berlin Wall. And you, <laughs> the when the Berlin Wall fall fell, of course, there was just such. It was such a period of optimism, of hope, of this idea of a, a brave new world, Europeans together. And I was fascinated. Of course, I was swept up by that, uh, that, that optimism. And what has become of it? And that was the reason behind my, my decision to retrace the journey backwards. So not from Berlin to Moscow, but from Moscow to Berlin and to Brexit Britain to ask what happened to the optimism and hope of 1989. Uh, what became of it? And so, <laughs> and so I often I'm playing, playing with how to how to how to say the title of the book. Should it be Pravda <laughs> or Pravda or Pravda? Ha ha. <laughs> Just now you were showing us a, a series of fake, fake um, fact pictures that you oh, put yes. together of yourself with, with Vladimir Putin oh, in yes, various I, fairy tale destinations. Yes, yes. I, I did it in my backyard. My son took the picture. And then, uh, then a friend who, who's not quite as skilled, shall I say, he's a fabulous, fabulous um, uh, photo processor, but not quite as skilled as the Internet Research Agency in uh, St. Petersburg. But he managed to bring this uh, cutout Putin, which uh, I carry with me when I go to talks. He, he managed to, shall we say, bring him to life standing beside me. And, it, and it's, a, I'm, it's a very proud moment for me because in this photograph, so in this fake photograph, I actually have the chance to say to President Putin, I don't think that's fair what you've done. I think it's a little greedy. <laughs> so, Luke, this thing of fake news, I mean, you, you must be surrounded with it. In fact, we've had experts into The Guardian to advise us how to deal with deep fakes, haven't we? Well, 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 well yes. I mean, I, I was just going to, wanted just briefly to go back to, to Rory's question about what happened after the collapse of the Soviet Union. And I think your friend, Rory Vladimir Putin, happened. That, that <laughs> what, what, what's interesting and, and the, the stuff that we're all writing, you and I in different forms, is the fact that, that this, this bright dawn fizzled out and there was a very deliberate mm -hmm. counter-revolution led mm. by Putin Indeed. and the KGB Indeed. Mm -hmm. to, to restore, if not literally the Soviet Union, but uh, that playbook yes. uh, of assassination, of causing mayhem, and, and uh, Claire of, of, of deepfakes as well. And, and th th this idea that actually the, the, the truth doesn't exist um, the, the empirically, um, which actually is a Leninist idea that truth <laughs> back under communism was subservient to, to class, to a kind of class truth. But Putin has sort of taken this idea and expanded it in a very nihilistic way to the idea that th th there is no truth at all. Um, and he uses fakery, he uses lies, he uses propaganda, not just to um, dissemble before Russians, but also he's taking this on the road to try and bamboozle Americans, Brits, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, and Westerners. And I think he's actually been quite successful. He's doing rather well. To, yeah. uh, just to come back to this issue of truth now, yes. to pin it down a bit more. In, yeah. At the opening of your book, you, you quote definitions of truth, don't yes. you, um, Rory? <laughs> and Pro it's one. Pravda. <laughs> pravda of Pravda, the title of your book, and which means truth, whatever yes. truth yes. means yes. <laughs> in yes. Russia. And one is truth. Two is disposition to speak or act truly or without, without deceit. Truthfulness, veracity, sincerity. Um, three, Russian broadsheet newspaper, formerly the official newspaper of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union. <laughs> <laughs> what was that old saying? There's no, no, no truth in Pravda and no news in Izvestia. <laughs> <laughs> so so um, 
what did you find? And t- tell us about it. I mean, you found outrageous things, didn't you? Let's start with Putin's pecker. <laughs> <laughs> well, this, this is a story I tell about the chicken czar. Um, and the chicken czar, he made... God, the stories are just so fantastic. It just... It's so rich <laughs> for a writer. You know, the, the stories that come out of Russia, that have always come out of Russia, are, are so rich for a writer. So the, the story of Putin's pecker is there is this very special um, hallucinogenic uh, mushroom which exists just to the west of, of, um, of Moscow. And, uh, and I was introduced to a man who, who claimed to have... Um, discovered it and marketed it, marketed it. And so he took you out to his Dakar. His, the remains the of remains his Dakar. The remains of his Dakar. Yes, yes, Dacha. which he destroyed to access this, uh, this, this remarkable hallucinogenic um, pecker. <laughs> now, there are quite a few things in this book that you can never verify. You can't verify the existence of. But in this case, you do verify the existence of what you are told is mm. served up in a snuff box. And yes. it's a, a, a white mushroomy thing. You know, it, what I want this book to do is that I want it to provoke because we have become lazy because of the the the, the pressures, uh, because of the financial crisis, because of disappointment in Russia and f- our countries of the former Warsaw Pact, uh, it, we have come. Many of us have come to gobble up simplistic stories, and we're not able. We're not willing. So many of us aren't willing to to address to face the very complicated problems that that exist in the world today. And so we want simple solutions. We want, or many want Brexit. Many would like President Trump, uh, like President Trump as a uh, president. The stories that these individuals tell are very powerful. And in many cases, the majority just lap them up, these simplistic stories. And, and so this is how I want to, how I want Pravda Haha to provoke. I want to present stories which are on the edge of believability. So individuals or readers will say, but, but is that true? Well, in fact, are the stories I'm hearing from, from the Conservative Party conference or from Westminster or from the White House, are they true? Maybe I should not accept that there is a single truth. Maybe I should question. Are you saying that you didn't actually have a slither of Putin's pecker and end up rather high? I'm not saying that. <laughs> <laughs> have you heard of it? I, I, I haven't, but, but I thought I knew everything about Putin. But, I, but this is one story that's eluded me in my, oh, well, my decade-long investigation. As, as far as I know, he <laughs> has never indulged in it. But, uh. <laughs> but um, I mean, the thing about Putin is he, he's, he's, he's a sort of self-mythologizing creature mm, he's someone mm. who strips off and and fit, is topless on on horseback yes, and yes. and swims to the bottom of the mediterranean and comes back with grecian urns he, <laughs> he flies with cranes and so on i mean he's, he's his own dramaturg so in in a way actually it's in the spirit of putinism that you 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 tell this story slash fable yeah well it's like 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 shallow fakes my photograph of me and putin mm. Uh, there's a wonderful on the internet. There's a picture of him riding a vast Russian bear at the moment. Mm. I love those shallow fakes because I think they make us question. They make you say, "Well, hang on, did he really strip off and catch fish and ride on a horse?" So I, I'm going to 
challenge you again on this issue okay. of truth and reality, because for us as journalists, corroboration is mm-hmm. absolutely mm-hmm. vital, isn't it? And absolutely nailing down facts. Mm-hmm. Are you saying that you're happy to just tell a story as if it existed because it's been told as a story and it makes a good one? I would. I'm happy to tell it as long as I qualify it, as long as I pace, place it in, in context. Um, I have a responsibility to the individuals who are good enough to talk to me, uh, be to be interviewed by me. I, I want to reflect them honestly. So if they to- have told me a story, uh, yes, I will try to uh, substantiate it, but equally I will accept them accept them for for the stories they tell so but you did take you did were given a sliver of this mushroom i did spend my time with dimitri (laughs) 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 and there is a sort of a little theme of altered consciousness going through now is that a metaphorical evocation of altered consciousness or is that a a literal thing i i it I think it comes back to stories. I'll come back to stories. I think it's it's so important <laughs> to provoke as you're doing to to encourage the reader to ask a question. But is that true? Is that how it was? Uh, I, I because of the subjectivity of experience, because the historical record is never complete. I I believe that histories, if you like, stories, histories, are constructions. There have always been gaps which have had to be filled in. And as writers, as journalists, we do our very best to corroborate. But what that leads me to thinking is if there is or if there are gaps in the historical record and if they need to be filled in, that they have been filled in of and for their time with a subjective viewpoint. Well, yeah, I, I mean, I, I understand um, Rory's relativism and, and, and your kind of playful approach, but it, it's it's very different for, from what we do as journalists. Indeed, because actually indeed. What I've tried to do, and, and, and colleagues as well, is to actually discover hmm. truth, the mm-hmm. truth, rather yes. than a, a, a truth, yes. in, in the face of lying and uh, mm-hmm. propaganda mm-hmm. Um, by, by powerful state entities, in particular Russia. So mm-hmm. if you take the Litvinenko story, mm-hmm. Um, I, w- when I got to, to Moscow for the Guardian in 2007, just after Livnyanka was, was poisoned with a radioactive cup of tea, uh, the Kremlin was denying any involvement, saying it was all a fiendish British plot featuring mm-hmm. Tony Blair and MI6. Mm-hmm. And, and I met the two killers and um, tried to chase down the role of the FSB, Putin's spy agency, which actually was responsible. And it mm-hmm. was only when we got a public inquiry in 2015, which I, I covered for, for, for the Guardian, that we finally got all the police evidence and the science and so on. And, and actually, the reason I wrote my book was to say, look, this is what really happened. Mm-hmm. Uh, a man was murdered. This is how it was done by two inept assassins who flew in, poured this polonium down the hotel bathroom, failed several mm-hmm. times, went to an erotic nightclub and so on. And uh, th- that, kind of, that kind of empirical storytelling, which is, which is real, I, I think is so important because unscrupulous sovereign states and unscrupulous leaders, including this country, make stuff up and lie. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And I, I see see my job as a kind of writer, reporter, to, to actually 
get it right and to present the the, the, the truth for, for for everybody because otherwise in a way if you if you if you embrace this sort of relativism mm-hmm. then 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 you're 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 playing the kind of despots game there's a lovely section where you go to kaliningrad um, which i've always been fascinated in um, because it is effectively a, a russian naval boatyard now um, and you get you literally end up in a dead end and somebody says, "Ah, oh, but you, ha- we, we need. I can tell you where the amber room is, and the amber room is is this sort of mythical room that, as far as everybody knows, has been was pulverized at some point mm-hmm. by somebody, and takes you down into the tunnels beneath the new Stalinist edifice, which was built on the where the the beautiful Königsberg yes. Castle was. Yes. And tell us about that." Um, tell you about being taken. Well, I, I, when I was in Kaliningrad, I was, I, you know, when, when I have to say I'm not a journalist. I don't purport to be a journalist. I'm a storyteller. And and so but so when I was in Kaliningrad, I was uh, I was <laughs> I thought I've arrived here and I have nothing to write about. There's I thought, oh, well, I've wasted a couple of days. It happens. I guess I better carry on and get on to Ukraine, which was or Transnistria, which was the next destination. And then I was I was swept up (laughs) by a sort of tour guide who uh, took me to the casinos because at one point um, uh, the powers that be in Russia thought Kaliningrad should become the. uh, (laughs) <laughs> the uh, the Macau of Europe uh, built lots of um, casinos, and uh, and then I was taken by him with a couple of others to uh, to discover the amber room, which he swore initially that he knew, and we just ended up wandering aimlessly beneath this great ugly so- uh, Soviet era behemoth building, which uh, was supposed to be I think twenty four stories floor high, but because it was built on the marshy ground. And the foundations of the old castle it's, had started to collapse, so they scaled it back to 21, but still it kept <laughs> kept sinking in the earth. So you and, and a French couple, Sue really, and a kitten that you yes, discovered yes. in yeah, the yeah, water, yeah. and this guide. Yes. But you come to a dead end. We come to a dead end, yeah. It was a dead end. There are, <laughs> uh, there are when, when one is traveling, you know, one follows one's intuitions, one follows instincts, one's, one hopes. You don't set everything up. You, you hope that someone you meet will introduce, will lead to a series of encounters or a contact or a, uh, an interesting story. So, Rory, one of the things that you um, do is you, you can meet sort of in unexpected figures, figures who, who don't fit into any narrative. For mm-hmm. example, your Nigerian, little Nigerian man who you mm-hmm. discovered on, a met- on the metro in Moscow. Yes, first saw him on the metro. With a bird on his shoulder. Well, there was a bird <laughs> in the metro <laughs> and it briefly alighted on his shoulder. And, and the story is he's called Sammy. Yes. And, the, and what his story tells is a story about transcontinental migration, yes, which yes. totally weirdly took him, got him stuck in Moscow, yes, where you would yes. not expect a northern Nigerian to have arrived. No, no. Tell us about that, a bit about that. <sighs> These, it, it, this Pravda Haha is a reflection on my reflection on the history of Europe over the last 30 years. And key to that is the, the, uh, the story, the plight of of migrants, of migration, of refugees. And, um, and so I tell the story of three refugees in the book, one of whom 
um, if you like, the most entertaining one is the story of Sammy. And Sammy had had his toes cut off by nuns. <laughs> <laughs> it did that one really toe, happen? One toe. <laughs> a toe. Don't, oh, who's overdoing it here now, Claire? <laughs> <laughs> one toe. And it was the baby toe. <laughs> because because they wanted to enslave him, basically. Well, that, he, was that a true story? He, he fell out of... Um, uh, he ended up being in Russia without... Uh, his visa expired. And so he was uh, there illegally. And so they he became rather indispensable to the nuns in this uh, in this very dodgy monastery, which he would never name to me. And so they uh, came up with a way of holding on to him, of threatening him. So now th- this story about um, the thing about um, tr- sort of trans global stories, um, it- it, uh, I was fascinated by um, Oliver Bullock's book Moneyland, yeah. which came out <laughs> earlier this year. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, and, that, and he's come out of it's come out of his his knowledge of Russia, basically, isn't it? And he's and it has led to this idea that there is a sort of Moneyland which hovers above above the world, which just only rich people have access to, and they can. I, I sort of have this sort of image of sort of th- of. of, of um, Leonardo type sort of lightning bolts coming down to earth which is the a- access to passports and which is also a conduit for capital to come down and swamp to swamp the world that the rest of us live in. Yeah no I mean I, I thought it was a, a fascinating book um, and it's got lots of Russian characters and, and protagonists in it and it's interesting because it, it sort of builds on some of the reporting that we did with the Panama Papers and the Paradise Papers the Panama Papers came out in 2016 where, where we for the first time had a, a sort of overview of how global kleptocracy works. Um, and of course, there were oligarchs in there and kind of mafia guys and bad guys, but also sort of French dentists and German <laughs> chicken barons uh, and sort of upper middle class people you wouldn't expect to have a secret account in Panama or off- offshore in the BVI. And my, my sort of takeaway from it was, firstly, the, the scale of corruption, but secondly, the, the, the really perfidious role played by the UK. I mean, so many of these corporate entities were registered in London or Glasgow or Birmingham. And, and moreover, there was a, a class of facilitators or of, of lawyers, accountants, company formation agents who were behind the scenes getting rich off, off, off the back of kleptocracy. I mean, it's not surprising that if you're a government minister that you would have an Isle of Man, an entity and a Liechtenstein bank account and all the rest of it. What was more surprising were, were the firms with, with rather nice sort of Georgian offices in central London and, and, and lovely topiary uh, who were doing all this secretly. Um, and so, so yeah, it, it's, in, in, it's in, interconnected, but we in the West cannot absolve ourselves because we, we actually are, are part of the problem. And I, 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 without veering too much into politics, I sort of fear for our post-Brexit future that we're going to end up being Monaco with bad weather that this will be our role <laughs> in the world we'll, we'll be a Monaco where it rains but but we we roll out the red carpet for every criminal in Toyota indeed now, I just want to to bring bring us back to to your book Rory, yes. and to to one particular encounter which is really telling we mentioned Orban and Hungary mm-hmm, mm-hmm. of course you're not t- just talking about Russia as mm-hmm, is now you're talking mm-hmm. about all the fallout states mm-hmm. or the states that have mm-hmm, made their mm-hmm. own futures mm-hmm. will you just read us about your 30 years on encounter with a oh. carpenter you met oh, when you were r- writing Stalin's this package? is Alios Alios uh, living in Tokai um, now since a uh, such he was he he died not so long ago now but um he had such principles communism was banished capitalism come in had come in so alios's son opened a little shop at just next door and it was filled with 
peppers and oranges and 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 he was so excited it was the it was a new beginning and now well it has changed i told him of the changes that i had seen on my journey of hopes betrayed fears manipulated and people choosing to believe lies rather than face difficult questions i also see that nobody in hungary is in danger of losing weight i added Since the fall of the wall, Hungarians had become the fourth most obese nation in the world. People eat well in our banana republic, said Elios. It helps them to overlook the ruin around us. Have some more coffee. The ruin, I said as my cup was refilled. Our judges have been tamed and journalists restrained once again. Enemies are invented and loyal politicians given our property once again. Now we are just there marketplace including sandor's shop including sandor aldi with its hungarian partner bought the old co-op undercut his prices drove him out drove my son out of his own home like the avh have driven me out unso weiter unso weiter and so it goes on and on as ever so that is fairly depressing isn't it is there any hope do we have hope for ourselves or for for the former <laughs> the countries of the former soviet union I, i mean i think i think there is hope it's easy to to, to lapse into, into into gloom and pessimism but but uh the the kgb is not immortal um <laughs> and vladimir putin sure? and his his sort of secret service chums who, who've really run the state for for two decades are now in their mid 60s um and despite their investment in nanotechnology i don't think they're going to live forever and meanwhile we have a new generation of people under 25 who've known nothing but putin who are demonstrating we had big mm-hmm. protests in mm-hmm. moscow and st petersburg mm-hmm. in july and august and that doesn't equate to political change or the regime falling down but it, it does show civic engagement mm-hmm. and i think we we live in an era of fast time we certainly live in an era of fast news and mm-hmm. instant communication um and so I, I, I'm sort of demographically optimistic, if that makes mm-hmm. sense, mm-hmm. Um, even for this country as well, mm. actually, um, that it's not going to be this kind of gloom and populism um, and post-truth um, forever. And I think we need to just carry on having writing books like your great book, Rory, and, and, and having civilized conversations. That, 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 <laughs> indeed, that in our own modest indeed. literary way is, is, is a step <laughs> in the right direction. <laughs> yes, it's, it's the pendulum, isn't it? The pendulum has swung to, to one extreme, and hopefully it's on the way back now. I, I think some sort of... I, I totally agree with what you say, Luke, about the younger generations. I think that's the hope. Ah, it was ever thus. That's the hope for the future. But also, I think, interestingly, uh, uh, on a geopolitical level, a, a, a need has arisen for, for Germany and Russia to come to some sort of terms because I've, I, uh, Russia would like its... <laughs> It's, uh, its efforts, shall we say, in Syria to be acknowledged in a way so it can say at home, it is a victory, we the Russians have won. Um, and Germany would like to ease many of the Syrians back to Syria, the Syrian refugees who are in, in, uh, in Germany, and that can't happen without Russia's help. So, and plus add in Crimea. So I think there might be an area for understanding what do you think about this that in the future 
Well, uh, I, I'm, I'm skeptical about that. <laughs> I, I don't think Russia has um, played a glorious role in in, in Syria. Oh, it's and I no think, glorious I think Crimea, role. Unfortunately, will, will be unresolved, um, right. uh, and it's going to be quite hard to to reconcile um, that. Well, thank you both for your optimism <laughs> <laughs> and stories and stories. <laughs> that was Rory McLean and Luke Harding. Pravda Ha Ha, or should that be Ha Ha, is published by Bloomsbury, and A Very Expensive Poison is published by Guardian Faber in the UK and Vintage in the US. Or am I just making all that up? We'll continue our discussion of the blurred lines between fact and fiction after the break. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale, starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome back to the Guardian Books podcast, where we're examining whether the divide that exists in bookshops between fiction and non-fiction is something of a fiction itself. So, Sean, as our resident ex-bookseller, mm. were there ever times when you weren't sure whether a book should live under fiction or non-fiction? Uh, yes. There is a line that is blurred by authors themselves, and then sometimes the line is blurred by readers uh, after the fact. And so one person that we used to shelve in both fiction and in travel writing was Bruce Chatwin. Mm. And there are sort of all sorts of interesting conundrums raised by Bruce Chatwin, who's sort of most famous, I guess, for songlines and in Patagonia. But there is there, there are sort of interesting criticisms to be made of, of his writing. Um, he would often write of a character uh, who shared a name with him and had lots of biographical details shared with him. But then he would sort of write about communities that perhaps he could have been more embedded with. So I'm, I'm thinking of Songlines, particularly as an Australian, you know, the, um, the Songlines is kind of a tricky book for a lot of people because he basically spent nine weeks in Alice Springs um, in 83 and 84, um, but couldn't speak any Indigenous languages and was writing about Indigenous communities, so had to rely on interpreters where he could find them and then spoke to a lot of white Australians for this book. So there's all sorts of criticism about how accurate this book is anyway. But then his sort of unwillingness to settle on whether he was writing fiction or non-fiction, he said himself that he didn't believe there actually was a divide between the two. Well, it's interesting that... that um 
one thing that occurred to me when I was thinking about him, I read these books a long time ago, was Songlines was a late book, mm. but it was also a book about, it was about Australia, one of, in air quotes, our places. Yes. But in in Patagonia, which he wrote in 1977, it because it was such a much more foreign place whether we asked the same we gave the same cultural in- interrogation to right. to his his approach and his his attitude to other people's truths yes. that he was purporting to be reporting yeah yeah and the interesting thing about in patagonia was it was described by his editor and by him as cubist what relation does Picasso (laughs) a Picasso portrait carry to the human face as we see it this is a particular problem with travel writing Claire yeah it came up in in the interview that that travel writers the truth that they are mining is a different sort of truth it's an impressionistic truth I wouldn't say it's a cubist truth Hmm. always Mm. and particularly in Rory's case so you know I, I absolutely would not question Rory's devotion to the truth his truth but the fact that he might not have gone off on quite such a mushroom hallucinatory trip as he has reported, that becomes a sort of stylized way of carrying the narrative forward. It's something that in terms of journalism is something you couldn't get away with. And I think that there are these two traditions and the travel tradition um, has had a very vexed and contested history, which goes back also to Rajad Kapuczynski, mm. um, you know, as international Listeners will know that this travel reportage goes has a, a, a sort of, in a way a more distinguished tradition in in Middle Europe than it does in in the UK. Mm. And Kapuczynski was the the great proponent of it. Um, and he at one point um, when he was questioned, he said he uses magic realism as, as yes. part of his. Now you know magic realism is the, is classically a, a fictional trope. Yes. Obviously. Well, he he talked about it as literary rep- reportage. What he did, but then. Being a journalist and being someone that was quite famous for his, you know, pure journalistic work on top of his his books, there is a question, I think, about, you know, I think it's fair sometimes for people to feel like maybe they have been taken for a ride when, you know, they think a book is reportage and then someone like Kapuscinski turns around and says, actually, it's allegorical, which is uh, what he said about the emperor. And the Emperor, which was his portrait of, of Haile Selassie. Yeah, and, and again, Ethiopia. you see, that was a book that dealt with a, a, an area of the world that we're not up, utterly familiar with. Yes. So, so we take it on trust that, he's, that he does know what he's talking about. Yes, and so there were reporters who were, were in Ethiopia at the same time who um, disputed his account of some facts. Um, it, you know, it could be um, as little as he says at one point that uh, the capital didn't have bookshops and someone else said, well, actually, no, there, there were six at the time. And then uh, the initials that he used um, when talking about witnesses in a court case and someone said that the initials don't match up to anyone that was uh, involved in that court case. But then he would talk about his own writing as, again, not fitting pure reportage or fiction at all. And it was this sort of strange blend and you're right though that it's perhaps that he did feel a certain license to do this both because of his career as as a, a general journalist but also because the of the locations he was writing about and there was criticism sort of after the fact of him and the free pass he was given to sort of say that the emperor was allegorical someone said you know well what if the reverse had happened and he'd written a whole book about Poland and then turned around and said that it was an allegory for 
for Ethiopia, you know, that wouldn't be okay. Like, you know, Western readers and European readers would say, well, hang on, that's that's not right. We, we need the sort of facts of this. Yeah, but because so, it was Africa, it was sort of okay. And why did he not choose to do what Giles Foden did when he wrote The Last King of Scotland, which mm. is to make an all-out satire, yeah. um, which is also has, has a truth in it, but but is not aspiring to be rep- uh, reporting any sort of facts. Yeah. Do, do you think we're in danger of being a bit too Anglo-Saxon about all this? Uh, when she reviewed Artur Domaslavsky's controversial biography of Kapuscinski, in 2012, Agata Pizik pointed out that the controversy in the foreign media was all about how he had embroidered the truth in service to style or politics, whereas in Poland, the controversy was about his affairs, his close connections to the communist intelligence services and his uneasy adaptation to post-1989 realities. Does this distinction between fiction and non-fiction read differently outside the UK and the US? Well, there are two things going on there, aren't there? One is that she's referring to the gossip quotient of a homegrown writer. So mm. they were more interested in the gossip. Yeah. We're, we're Particularly his wife was outraged. Yeah, but I do think, you know, I think that, that there is a, a point about um, different cultures having different writing traditions. And it, I, I'm on the board of English Pen, which is the writer's charity. And, um, and one of the conversations we have a lot is the difference between journalism and literature. And that there is a continuum, but there is a cutoff point as well. So yes. our responsibility is to writers as literary beings, which excludes some journalists, but by no means all, but it is very different. And writers in the Arabic world or in parts of Europe, for example, would they just don't make that distinction in the same way at all. Mm. And that re- that is a reflection of their self-identification, but also the sort of literature they write, which brings us again back to Kapuscinski. Yeah, I mean, I'm struck by, I remember Alexander Hemon saying that there just aren't any words for fiction or non-fiction in Bosnian. He says, this is not to say that there is no truth or untruth. It's just that a literary text is not defined by its relation to truth or imagination. Well, yes, I mean, you know, and, and this here we come to the nub of it. It's my slight anxiety around it is that I just think in this world, and particularly where we came in on the reporting of Russia, which and, and the reason why I wanted to do this podcast was I have noticed this sort of gonzo reporting of <laughs> Russia. And, and, you know, uh, you have to guard the parameters of truth and reality very, very carefully in an era in which there is so much false news. Yes. So at what point does the writer, is the writer colluding with false news by actually saying, oh, my God, that's a good story. Yeah. You know, that's fantastic. And is it just part of the Twitter sphere fantasy about what's going on? Um, in fact, I think that um, Rory says something very interesting. Um, He says, at the start of the 21st century, many Russians and then many Westerners lost their appetite for the truth. They chose not to ask questions, preferring the easy choice of of falsehood, of being fed simplistic solutions to complicated problems, of championing leaders who have the power to reshape reality in line with their stories. Mm. So so he has identified something that's going in in, in society. But in doing that, you know, the writer has to take on the mantle of trust to be telling the truth and not just a different sort of falsehood. And and it becomes very morally difficult. And isn't the problem with that that we expect too much of narrative nonfiction or of memoir? We expect our memoirists to remember a conversation they had when they were 17 with their girlfriend or whatever. We expect a a, a writer of narrative nonfiction to move us in the way we're moved by a novel. But actually, maybe that's just not possible. So in the shaping of fiction, you're creating a different reality, aren't you? Because events don't happen like they don't unfold with a good narrative arc. That is the creation of the writer. But I would also like argue that if you know in yourself that you can't reliably uh, relay facts from your own past you're perfectly entitled to write 
novels inspired by your own past, but sell it as a novel and don't sit on the fence and start calling it literary reportage because I do think there needs to be a safeguard for journalism and factual uh, storytelling as opposed to this sort of strange blend of fact and fiction where a reader is not necessarily armed with the knowledge to know what is true and what isn't. And when a writer just shrugs at them and goes, it's art, that's kind of not good enough. And it's certainly not good enough anymore, but I don't really believe it ever was good enough. I just think that there are some talented writers out there that could do beautiful things like Kapuscinski and Chatwin, but there was a really uncomfortable line about what they were doing by going into the communities they did. And yet, and yet, and yet we all want it. James Frey tried to sell his memoir, which was famously unmastered being not true. He tried to sell it first as a novel, but nobody wanted to buy it. Yeah, but, you know, is that our problem or is that the problem of publishers? And is that the problem of Frey that he was willing to go along for that? charade i think that but we're the ones buying it we're the ones on, uh, taking that's it off the a very saying, generous we richard because i did not buy it <laughs> and I, we put that in fiction in my bookshop by the way <laughs> i have to and i have to bring us back to the book that we be, that, that this discussion has sprung off which is pravda ha ha or is it ha ha <laughs> <laughs> and, and to say this is a really good book you know what it, it, it we're not talking about james frey here mm. we're not talking about the, the sort of creation of fantasy we're talking about an honest attempt to capture a reality that Rory has perceived and the, if you you know the way you, you look at the relationship between the two eras and the two books yeah they are this is something that one will go back to 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 say this says something about the madness of our current times mm. the the translator Esther Allen uh, I remember said that that she says that bookshops in France often group their stock by country rather than dividing it between fiction and non-fiction. Do you think that's something that ever catch on? Well, in the, there, in the there's UK? a suggestion. We have mm. we have Russia, which is i.e. fiction. Yes, yeah. <laughs> there is no such thing as Pravda when you come to the Russia shelves. <laughs> on the other hand, when you come to the Finland shelves, it's all about sort of social justice. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I think that I mean there are bookshops out there that do shelve their books outside of genre, but I would just say that there is a um, a, a certain reader, I think, and, and, and count me in as one of them that finds that experience incredibly frustrating to go into a bookshop and have a sense of exactly what I want and then go up and be told that all the different shelves have been curated by different authors and maybe the book I want is there somewhere and they've got no way of finding it for me. If you're a bookshop that has the capacity to do this, just put a copy of a book in every section you think someone will want to find so, it. So you so you end up also with the with the sort of wonderful accidental jokes like exactly. Shirley Williams, the the, the um, sort of very distinguished parliamentarian whose memoirs were called Climbing the Bookshelves, and they were filed under mountaineering. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, that's all for this week. Um, next week we're going to talk to Megan Phelps Roper about life after Westboro Baptist Church. If you have any thoughts about this week's episode, get in touch on Twitter at Guardian Books or on the podcast page. And remember, you can subscribe and review us wherever you get your podcasts. But for now, from me, Richard Lee. Me, Sean Kane. Me, Claire Armistead. And our producer, Esther Apokujeni. Thanks for listening and goodbye. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts.